We read today from the epistle lesson assigned by the lectionary, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18a. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. How shall we describe the collection of knowledge that we call the Bible? The Bible is like a library. Many different works giving us perspective across hundreds and even thousands of years. Or it's like an archive keeping track of God's unfolding story by safeguarding the stories and prayers of God's people over time and distance. Or it's like a photo album, showing you how things looked at one moment in time, allowing us to take context into account. When you look at your old photos, you may flinch at your hairdo, but you're reminded that the social context guided your decision to wear it that way. A photo album makes us aware that things that seem to work in one context can look very different in another. And that is true of the Bible, too. Context assists our reading of the Bible. Our Moravian guidelines for biblical interpretation affirm that text can be illuminated by historical understanding. That's especially true of epistles letters written to early Christ followers, like 1 Peter, from which we read today. Knowing something about the historical situation of the first readers helps us understand the advice in the letter. At the time 1 Peter was probably written, Christians were not yet the target of systematic persecution, but they had begun to annoy the surrounding society. As you heard today in the reading from Acts, Christians were prone to disturbing the peace with public speeches that sometimes riled the crowds. Also, Christians sometimes disrupted social structures, doing things like elevating women to leadership positions, or sharing tables among different social classes, or sometimes giving up accepted family ties for a new family of siblings in Christ. Their new religious rituals made them the subject of outrageous rumors. Christians drink blood. Christians eat babies. Those were actual rumors passed around at this time. And so the early Christ followers addressed in this letter felt estranged from society, exiles and aliens. That they were suffering is apparent from how much the author talks about suffering theirs and the suffering of Jesus Christ. Not the ordinary suffering, not the illness and grief and loss of our mortal lives, 
and not even the suffering consequent to our own sins, but the suffering of doing right and being punished for it. Especially in the earlier parts of this letter, there's a lot of advice of how to live in the face of this kind of suffering. A lot of the advice focuses on behavior. It matters how Christ's followers behave in the face of unjust suffering because people are watching. 1 Peter 2.12 urges readers to conduct themselves honorably because believers' response to unjust suffering is their chance to change hearts by their example. And if hearts are not changed, at least wicked voices may be silenced. Verse 2.15 says that believers, by doing right, may silence the ignorance of the foolish. If nothing else adds today's text, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. And yet, with all this counsel about behavior, the letter makes it clear that believers cannot behave their way out of suffering. After asking rhetorically and encouragingly, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good, it goes on. But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, this presumption that unjust suffering is the expected lot of those who do good turns the question just asked on its head, scattering dark verbs through the verses that follow, suffer, fear, intimidate, malign, abuse, suffer, 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 suffer. Who will harm you if you are eager to do good? Apparently a whole lot of people. You don't have to be a student of history to know that sometimes, even a lot of times, people suffer for doing what is right. And you don't have to be a student of ethics to know that making people suffer when they do right is not just. But as readers of 1 Peter, we have a question. What is God's will in this kind of suffering? Among the four scripture texts assigned for each Sunday by the Revised Common Lectionary, I often choose to preach on something that I struggle with something I find difficult to reconcile with my concept of God and Christ. I figure if I'm struggling, maybe you are too, and a sermon gives us the opportunity to think it through together. Well, this week I struggled with 1 Peter, and especially with this verse from today's reading. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. We are forced to ask, what do we believe about God's will in relation to our suffering? We believe that God wills our mortality. And mortality necessarily includes illness, loss, and grief, all of which cause suffering. But our Moravian burial liturgy, quoting Lamentations, makes this statement of faith, Lord our God, you do not willingly bring affliction or grief to your children. Our testimony through this liturgy is that God grieves rather than wills our mortal suffering. This we verily believe. We believe that God wills free will. That is, God wills that humans make choices. 
Choosing to sin, and thereby choosing the suffering that sin causes, that's on us. This we verily believe, along with the author of 1 Peter. But when it comes to God's will in suffering for doing good, we can discern that only in the largest context, which is the suffering of Jesus Christ. As the author of 1 Peter acknowledges, the righteous for the unrighteous. But don't we also believe that Christ's suffering, as it says right here in 1 Peter 3.18, was once for all? Is it God's will that ordinary mortals suffer like Jesus continually over generations for doing good? I've been turning this over in another context, the story of St. Stephen. Thanks to William Sanders' vivid retelling of that story last Sunday, I can't stop thinking about it. Was the suffering of that righteous man God's will? This I verily cannot believe. Although Stephen, like Jesus, was a righteous man dying at the hands of the unrighteous, do we believe that God willed the crowd to pick up stones and throw them at Stephen till he died? Come to think of it, do we believe that God willed the crowd to yell for the death of Jesus? If it was God's will to rescue us from sin through the death of Jesus, still it was human sin that killed him, and human historical context that provided a system to achieve it. You know what? In more than 10 years of preaching here, this is the first time I have ever preached on 1 Peter. I avoid it because of assumptions that are built into its historical context. Like other late epistles, the Timothys, for example, 1 Peter seems to be written for a once countercultural church now trying to find a place in an ordered society. And the result is sometimes disturbing. Out of curiosity, I looked to see what other 1 Peter text the lectionary assigns for Sunday preaching. In a three-year cycle, there are eight of them. I noticed by the careful choices that the lectionary editors seem to share my squeamishness. For example, they include chapter 2, verse 19, which says, For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. But they left out the verse right before it. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference. They also left out wives in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands. And a reference to women as the weaker vessel. Context is helpful when we read the Bible, but context does not excuse everything we read. And certainly not everything we do. Sometimes what we dismiss as historical context is a human system built on sin. Slavery was the context of its time. Discrimination, the context. Knowing this context does not and should not make us comfortable with verses that counsel deference to authority if that authority is built on a sinful system. 
when an author whose social context perpetuated slavery and discrimination presumes to discourse on suffering, we have reason to question the advice. What does speaking with gentleness and respect mean in that context? What does it mean to maintain a good conscience when you are maligned and abused if the ones who malign and abuse you also presume to own you? How would it feel to an enslaved person to be told that unjust suffering might be God's will for them? Ask generations of African Americans. Within a sinful system, within a context of injustice, it is not good Christian behavior to stay silent, to defer, to go along, to get along. Not that Moravians have ever done that, except, for example, when we decided to participate in the American system of slavery, or beginning with the Synod of 1764 when we gradually removed women from positions of leadership, including ordination. We made those decisions partly because we didn't want to look too different from our American neighbors. So you know how we wound up? We wound up not looking too different from our American neighbors. Contexts change. Understanding increases. More and more knowledge is available to us as we study our Bible, which is like a library, like an archive, like a photo album. And as I learned last week from listening to the sermons of our youth, the Bible is like the fabulous stone formations in the Grand Canyon or Colorado's Garden of the Gods, with something new continually laid over something old, building a structure stronger and more beautiful. The Bible is like paths laid down one stone at a time, leading us eventually to where God wants us to be. The Bible is like a pile of stones whose use depends on our human choices. We can use them to build a foundation or a path, or we can just throw them at each other. We cannot behave our way out of suffering, but we surely can and have behaved our way into it. Where we have allowed context to excuse behavior that produces suffering, we must change not only our behavior, but our contexts going forward. That means we cannot always be Christians in the same way that our forebears thousands of years ago in Rome or a few hundred years ago in Salem were Christians. No generation can be Christians in the exact mold of Christians who have gone before. New layers of knowledge, forming over the old, shape new contexts and call us to new life, even as they build foundations that should and can and do stand forever. Amen.